The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. Lots to see, kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. Some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Well, I'd like to welcome Walter Stewart to the show. Hi, Wally. Good morning. Good morning to you, Dave. Now, oh, sorry, well, good evening. Good, good evening in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah, we're using Zoom, and you're in London, aren't you? Or is it London? Yeah, or... down in down in Dorset, about a hundred miles southwest of London. Ah, right. Now you were a New Zealand Army pilot back in the 1960s. Yes, I did. I started um, life in the New Zealand Army on returning from Sandhurst in 1960, and uh, into the artillery. 
And then I was selected for AeroP, Air Observation Post uh, pilot training in 1962, when I went and completed a course at, uh, at number one flying training school, Wigram. So had you originally, um, even before you joined the Army, had you had an interest in aviation or was this just something that came up? No, it's something that was an opportunity that came up, which I've I come myself very lucky to have um, to been able to grab. I know my, my grandfather had been a career Royal Navy officer from 1877 onwards wow. and up till, up till the First World War. And um, so I think as a schoolboy, I'd had an interest on perhaps on becoming joining the Navy. And then um, in my uh, I was at school in New Plymouth Boys High School and um, I think my father um, suggested I go along and chat to the army. Anyway, I wound up being being. Uh, what he had a selection course at um, at, at Linton, and then I wound up being selected to to go to the UK for two years. Um, so no, I had no previous experience of flying at all, and um, but it was a wonderful opportunity, and I have to say it's become obviously the the centre of my life, both military and and um, and civilian um, employment since. Okay, so how old were you in 1962 when you were selected to to Linton? Well, I was born born in 1940. Okay, yep, yep. So, young 22 year old. Um, yes. And uh, where were you originally from? What, what part of the country did you grow up in? Uh well, Palmerston North. Oh yeah. Um, and then and then uh, five years in Motueka. Okay, yep, yep. Right, so. Were there already pilots in the army at that stage? Was it quite a quite a thing, or was this fairly new? No, there had been. There were there were several, there were several generations of pilots um, in the Royal New Zealand Artillery at that stage. Yep. Uh, I can't remember when they first started, but obviously sometime in probably the early fifties, and they did their um, flying training, uh, initial flying training on uh, Tiger Moths. Uh, and then on to Oscars, and uh, which was the, at that stage the standard uh, AeroP uh, uh, aircraft. Yeah. Whereas I, whereas I did my uh, Abinitio training on the Harvard. Okay. Uh, and then, which had replaced had had long since replaced the Tiger Moth, and from the Harvard I went on to the Oscar, which was an extraordinary change, going from five hundred and fifty horsepower to one hundred and twenty-two horsepower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So the uh, the wings course was a standard one. You you were on a, a course with other uh, RNZAF pilots. No, it was a it was a special a one off for the New Zealand Army. Oh. Uh, there was one other art, art, artillery officer. Um, we were we were the shortlist from a from a selection board, and um, and no, so and it was a short course. It was like, if I remember correctly, about five months uh, in duration. Which was um, uh, just really enough to get us to um, to a, a, you know a reasonable standard of uh, operational flying on on the on the Osters. Okay, okay. <clears throat> so um, you say there were two of you. Now the other was that Roger Pierce with you on that? No, no, Ro no, no. Roger was an earlier generation, um, and and but he and I, as you as you were, joined up later when we went up to up to, up to Malaya and then to Vietnam, but. Um, no, I uh, was another officer called Brian Dilger who 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 did the course with me. Okay, yep, yep. Did you have any interesting experiences in the Harvard? Uh, any sort of uh, close goes, or I mean, what was your solo like and that sort of thing? Uh, no, it, it um, 
No, I had I had uh, two, a couple of very good instructors. Um, one, uh, Stu Boys, who has retired up to the Bay of Plenty. I've oh, been yeah. in contact with him once or twice since. Um, he really took me through. No, it, it, it was um, um, no a very, a very enjoyable experience. But we did only about fifty or sixty hours, which was enough to get up, you know, to do a little bit of aerobatics uh, and and quite reasonable solo flying. Uh, no, I didn't have any dramas, no engine failures. Well, I think one radio failure, but, uh, but otherwise, no. Otherwise, I, um, um, I was just a very enjoyable introduction to flying. Okay. And so when you progressed on to the Oster, uh, where was that done? Was that Wigram as well? That was still at Wigram. Yeah. Um, although we, although we, we uh, if I remember correctly, and I have a line a log book available, it would take me a while to get into it. But we, I think we did do one or two detachments from there. But it was really really flying the Oster off the grass grass areas um, on the Wigram, Wigram Airfield. Um, and while we were there, some um, word came through from Malaya that they were that they were operating on and off um, uh, uh, grass or dirt strips there, only a few yards wide and, and quite short. So they, they mowed a couple of uh, cross strips for us in the grass there so that we could practice uh, the more, more precision approaches and landings, with, with, which yeah. were relevant to our later deployment. Okay, okay. Um, and at that stage, really just to get to grips with the aircraft, or were you also working with artillery at that stage in the training? Or No, we had, no, we, it was really just I, pretty well pure flying at that stage. Um, you know, um, the various aspects of, of, of flying, um, uh, uh, I guess, I guess pure piloting, navigation, you know, cross-country navigation and so on. Right. Um, it, maybe these, this was the Oster J5 and the T7 we had there, fairly fairly early models, and um, with you know with quite limited capabilities. But but later on, obviously um, during um, uh, during my flying, uh, we, 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 I spent much more time then with 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 um, uh, with artillery. Right, right, right. Uh, so in that uh, that training phase at Wigram on on the uh, Osters. Uh, were you now with Army instructed, uh, like actual experienced Army pilots, or were they still the Air Force instructors? No, we were still we um, the the flying training, the flying course, the wings course was was um, was very much uh, run by the Army. If we didn't have any uh, qualified flying instructors in the Army, I don't know whether we ever have had, but um, there weren't any. So no, we were in the very capable hands of um, of uh, very experienced RNZAF QFIs. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so. You would have been destined, uh, being a, a, an Army Oster pilot, to join uh, Number Three Battlefield Support Squadron. I guess is that correct? Yes, that came along a little bit later. What happened was from our, from um, my course, I went back to um, uh, back to uh, One Six One Battery in Pabakura, which which because in those days there were no uh, there was, was no flying unit established for Army pilots. They they were they were taught to fly. Then sent back to their normal jobs, and then called forward for refresher flying uh, prior to the annual um, field exercises. Okay. Uh, so I went back to Papakura, and then from there, uh, Roger Pierce and I were, were chosen to go up to Malaya on rotation to replace two New Zealand Army pilots who were on secondment to the British Army in in in, in Malaya and Borneo, and um, so we. Uh, and that stage, the Oscar was scheduled to be replaced pretty well by the Sioux helicopter in in, uh, in the British Army, yep. uh, with, with, a, with a change of approach from 
from aero p flying to to general support flying within within infantry battalions and other units so we were then sent down in late 63 to nelson uh, to be uh, given a basic uh, helicopter course by uh, the late john reed who was who was the founder of helicopters in zealand limited in nelson right right so we spent we, we spent a month down there learning to fly the the uh, the, the bell 47 which was a uh, fascinating t- time. And, and then we were sent uh, January 64 up to Malaya. Okay, okay. Uh, how did you get up there? Was it in a freighter or? Uh, no, uh, you, uh, I, if I remember correctly, uh, in those days, the RNZF ran um, sort of shuttles up into Southeast Asia. And because we remember there was a, there was a Bristol freighter squadron based at RAF Changi. Yep. Um, and, and so we went. So we went up. Um, if I remember correctly, we went up. Uh, I don't remember which aircraft it was—a Hastings or, or a, a DC six. I can't really remember now. But so anyway, we, we arrived in Singapore, and uh, went from there by train up to a place called Kluang, which was where the six five six squadron army air corps was based, which was a, a grass airfield um, in southern on the southern part of the Malay Peninsula. Okay. <clears throat> so at that stage, how active was the British Army there with um, fighting the terrorists and that sort of thing was it still pretty ongoing? Well, they, they had the earlier campaign um, against the CTs, the communist terrorists, which was a, really a, a post Second World War um, uh, problem uh, had 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 finished. But that but then um, the Indonesians under Sukarno had decided that they that they were going to um, invade the North Borneo states of Sarawak and Brunei and Sabah, and uh, so the the British um, British forces were were deployed in some strength uh, to the North Borneo states. Um, so the squadron in Kluang and Malaya was very much the base from which uh, pilots and aircraft were sent forward to places like Kuching and Brunei. Um, to to support the 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 army on on in the jungle there. Okay, so when you arrived there, did you feel adequately trained enough in the helicopter to go straight into that sort of situation? Well, that was an inter- that's an interesting question because we arrived to find that there had been a delay on on the delivery of the helicopters. Um, so Roger and I went straight back to flying osters, and oh. so we. We did an in-theater conversion to an Oster called the Aero P Mark Nine, which was a, an Oster developed specifically for air observation post flying, and um, so we completed our our, our type, type conversions there, and then we sent out to uh, we out to Sarawak, uh, and I went to a place called some. Uh, we started off in Kuching, which was where the where and we joined a. I'm sorry, things are coming back to me. We joined an, a, a unit called Seven Reconnaissance Flight, which was a, a flight of six five six squadron army air corps. Yeah. We started off in Kuching, where we did a, a sort of theatre for mill and so on, ha- having competed before we left things like Jungle Survival Force and so on uh, with with the RAF in in Singapore. And um, so after settling in at Kuching, we were then sent off on detachments. And uh, Roger went to a place called Cebu, and I went to a place called Samangang. Um, and uh, where, where we had where we had solo Oster detachments um, and supporting uh, living with a, a an infantry battalion and in Roger's case he also he was co-located with a navy squadron and um, from there we flew various missions in support of the infantry battalion 
which was defending the uh, the Sarawak borders against in, incursions uh, from um, Indonesian forces. Right. Okay. So, what was life like on the unit? I mean, was it pretty busy? Yes, we we I I can't remember to, sort of total hours now, but we but we flew as required, um, uh, usually by day, occasionally by night. Um, uh, and I mean, the, I mean, the battalions had a series of company forward company bases, and they patrolled from there, trying to trying to um, uh, locate and intercept any uh, Indonesian incursions. And um, so we we did various things, such as um, if, if they weren't if, if they had become temporarily uncertain of their positions, we would go off and do a, a reconnaissance and try and find where they were. But you have to remember, maps at that stage were extraordinarily crude yeah. uh we had the the map we flew with um uh in, in Sarawak was basically uh watercourses um you know streams and and and, and rivers and so on and um uh, to the extent of having uh here be dragons written on the along the border area in <laughs> one, which, which was quite amusing I met up with some of the Royal Engineer uh, map surveyors later on and did work with them um so we, we we did reconnaissance. We did border patrols, just looking what for activity. I also, in uh, early '64, um, the, the British forces became aware of an Indonesian base set up on the border, and it was decided to attack that um, and, and remove it. So there was an operation called Operation Blunt, which I think is, has now been fully fully published. You have to remember that this was a very sensitive uh, Borneo was a very sensitive um, area. Um, and for example, the, the United States administration um, didn't believe uh, that the Indonesians were were attacking into into Sarawak, right. and so and, and evidence was slowly gathered, uh, and then they finally accepted the fact that we were actually defending uh, defending Sarawak against incursions rather than rather than um, being a, a you know um, an aggressive colonial power, right. um, and um, so. Anyway, this operation involved an assault of a, um, a company of uh, Gurkha infantry up onto the border ridge um, and with fire support from, among other things, a, a 105 millimeter howitzer, uh, for which I was the I was the observation post. So I got airborne with um, a, a, a battalion commander, I think it was, in the aircraft. Uh, for quite some time during the during that day long operation, uh, where we shelled the, the location on the border. Um, and and they also fired missiles from navy helicopters. Um, anyway, there was a it was a successful assault, and uh, I think the Indonesians had withdrawn from the position, were leaving a certain amount of kit and so on behind. So, um, so that really that and that was one of the first uh, I think instances of a of a formal aero pea shoot um, uh, from the Oster um, in, during the Borneo uh, campaign. Okay. I mean, otherwise, there were things like. Uh, helping uh, the Royal Engineer surveyors. They had um, aerial photographs uh, of uh, of the uh, of Sarawak and we flew uh, flew lines up and down those with a surveyor sitting beside me with a um, with a camera mounted on the on the aircraft. Uh, just just a, a, a welded up bracket and a 35 millimeter camera to take some stereo pairs yep. and and uh, of some of the um, survey points. 
And we also, um, and then he annotated the photographs with, with what the actual jungle was underneath, whether it was swamp jungle or, you know, uh, pepper plantings or primary jungle and so on. So they could certainly build up a, a more detailed um, um, mapping database. Right. Uh, I remember one other amusing incident was that it was, um, it might have been, uh, it was a celebration of a particular, a particular festival day. Um, and I, the Gurkhas were going to put on a demonstration on the in the local what's called what was called the Padang, which was a a, a um, like a village green, a, a clearing in the middle of of, of um, an area on the edge of Samangang. Yeah. And so, I uh, I flew across and parachuted in a little in a little a little tea box, I parachuted a, chick, a chicken down from the Oster into the clearing, which the Gurkhas were then going to. <laughs> it was a, a simulated resupply mission. Yeah. Uh, which which was quite fun. Um, otherwise, a lot of liaison flights flying because we were oh, hours by road and not always secure road uh, from the main headquarters in Kuching. Um, I did lots and lots of flights flying uh, commanders backwards and forwards um, or, or other things backwards and forwards between Kuching and Samangang. So we were kept very busy on, 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 you know, on an interesting variety of tasks. Okay. So were there, um, did the Indonesians have any aircraft in, in the combat zone was there any chance of you being shot down with an aircraft no well they did they had they had they had if i remember correctly some uh hercules aircraft um uh supplying their own bases on the other on their side of the border yep. but they didn't come across we had there were border patrols in, in, at kuching airport which had a very long um uh, sealed runway uh onto which um a, com a comet for example a comet airline used to come um, once or twice a week Excuse me. They um, there was a flight or detachment of um, javelin, uh, sort of day and night fighters there, and a, and a, and a detachment of hunter day fighters, with with both with the RAF and these mounted uh, you know armed border patrols every day to to deter any any uh, um, uh, aggression. Another patrol that we did from there with our Osters was to go up the, the northwest tip of, of Sarawak, as, if I remember correctly, is a place called Tanjong Datu, which is a, a point. And I used to do a, a regular patrol uh, from Kuching out there, uh, to, uh, looking around the corner in, into Indonesian waters to see whether they, they were moving any, any ships up. Okay. The other thing I did was recent. Um, the, we had uh, Royal Navy minesweepers off the coast, and we used to fly the mail out to them. So they would put put the letters into a, a waterproof container, and um, and we used to fly out off the coast, find the minesweeper, and uh, drop the post to them, hoping to get it to, onto the deck. But they always had a, a a diver available to go over the side and recover it if, if I missed. Anyway, whether it went into the water or on the deck, it was always welcome. Right. <laughs> Uh, so the answer, going back to your point, no, nothing. I wasn't aware of any Indonesian aircraft coming across the border, either, either, either transport or armed, um, um, because, because it was a fairly, fairly uh, uh, solid um, uh, British response on, on the north side to, to deter any such incursions. Right, right. Now, I've, um, I mean, the whole Borneo campaign to New Zealanders, and particularly younger New Zealanders like myself. Uh, is a bit of a mystery there's not there's never been really much out there on it but i've seen a few photographs and um that i've seen the RAF had things like belvedere's and uh other big helicopters were, were they moving troops around the jungle in the same way that later in vietnam that was happening with uh the uruquois or 
Yes, well, yeah. No, I can. Yeah, there, there is an excellent uh, official history. Um, um, I, I, it's down in my library, and I can't get at it quickly. But there, yeah. uh, there is. A, I can always email you the the, the name of the book. Sure. Um, uh, no, well, it started. <clears throat> the whole campaign started with with a with a, uh, an, a a rebellion in Brunei by somebody called Azahari. I think that was 1962. So, and obviously Brunei has has always been um, um, uh, has had strong connections with 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 the UK. Yeah. And so various elements of the British Army were, were deployed very quickly in into the North Borneo states. Um, in, in you know to repel any any further. Um, activities that that rebellion was was fermented by indonesian interests um so back to the bigger helicopters yes they there 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 was a a squadron of belvedere's and <clears throat> and uh royal navy uh, wessex and also uh raf um whirlwind 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 tens at that stage which okay. was the was the turbine powered um Whirlwind, and I, I, there were, there, were, there was usually one of these detached under Samangang where I was, and and um, so to keep my hand in with helicopters, I I flew uh, in the, in those with the Royal Air Force uh, on every opportunity, which was very enjoyable. Okay, uh, they were used they were used for um, uh, 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 troop lift, uh, as you say, but only usually only a single aircraft mission. Quite a different concept to the operations which Roger and I later took part on in in South Vietnam, wow. where they were mass mass formations of helicopters. So, the the, the Royal Air Force concept had been very much being um, a single air, a single aircraft operation or uh, a shuttle with with uh, one or two aircraft uh, in in a like a racetrack pattern, but well separated, never never in formation. Okay. Um, they lifted artillery. They lifted, took in ammunition. They took in um, uh, materials to build um, you know, sandbags and wire and so on to build um, uh, fortified company, uh, forward company bases, uh, and so on. Right, right. I, I understand uh, from what I've uh, read and, and listened to in various podcast interviews and stuff. The Malayan campaign that was earlier, the nineteen forty-eight to sixty campaign. The British actually got it pretty right. They 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 did things fairly well and managed to to do the right thing in, in quelling the the uh, communist uprising. Was it the same in Borneo? Was everything done fairly well there, and or was it a bit of a disaster? Or no, it was certainly not a disaster. No, the the deterrence worked terribly well. You've got to bear the. I mean, the border is hundreds of miles long. Yeah. Um, uh, and that may be an underestimate, but but a massively long border, threaded mainly along ridges on you know and jungle covered ridges and so on, yeah. uh, with a, with a watershed to the north into the into the Sarawak and Brunei and Sabah, and then a watershed to the south back in back into the uh, into Indonesian Borneo. Um, no, the Brits were 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 quick on the case and um, mounted an effective deterrence. With obviously with very stretched forces, um, mm. but but very effectively, uh, and as you say, I mean a lot of innovation had gone in, into countering the the CTs, the communist terrorists in in Malaya, yeah. and of course their existence goes right back to the Second World War when when the British um, mobilised uh, Chinese against the Japanese, uh, and and uh, my understanding is that the, the Chinese uh, forces were were, were 
were led to believe that they might uh, do quite well if they if they defeated the Japanese, and and that didn't fit in with with um, with uh, political and national requirements after the war, and which right. is why there was that communist terrorist or Chinese based um, rebellion. Um, but there have been problems in, in Malaya with bandits and so on for many, many years. I mean, my wife's uh, grandfather was murdered by Chinese bandits in Malaya in about 1917. So, um, you know, there have been, there's a history, there was a history of, 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 of problems of, of armed, armed activity. Okay. Um, but, uh, but no, but come, so the, but come back to the thrust of your question, which was, it, uh, I, it was a very, uh, uh, a very effective uh, operation with with uh, relatively limited forces uh, spread along a very very long border, um, uh, and, yeah, that, and that's that. And, and of course, it, it quite a contrast to to the later activity in in Vietnam. Right, right. But what what were the uh, what was the reaction of locals that you came across uh, to the British forces and and yourself? Oh, very very. Uh, you have to bear in mind there was a there was a British presence in the North Borneo states all the time. Yeah. Uh, with the British, with, with the for example, Sarawak effectively governed by a by a British resident. There was a long history going back to the Roger Brooke to 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 um to to British to British governance of of those states, which where where the local people were were Dayaks and Ebans who had been living in the jungle, um, in, you know, in jungle villages on shifting, on a shifting cultivation basis and so on for, well, for, for a very long time. Yes. Um, and so, the, so there was a well-established presence and that, uh, I imagine was used as the basis on which to build, uh, an armed presence, um, you know, military presence when the need came, um, to deter Indonesian, um, uh, aggression. Uh, so the answer was was that the the British were very much um, very much part of life there and um, and very and very welcome. Right. Okay. Um, so they definitely didn't want the Indonesians to come in and take over. And no, there was no, there was no. Uh, I imagine that they had probably, if, if you can think of a people living living in the in the jungle and on the edges of the jungle and going off going off looking for looking for things to, to eat and so on no, no doubt that the, the there had probably been historically uh, a, a mixing between both sides of the border which would have been rather um rather irrelevant yes. uh, uh, to people, people on the ground but these things become much much more political um, um later on right right so w- what was the the idealism behind the Indonesians at the time. I, um, I know they're very much um, a Muslim country now, but it was it the same then? And um... well, there was a there was a uh, the president. It's interesting. The the Indonesia was in was a, uh, had quite pro Western ties at that stage, and in particular, I think through to uh, through to to America, and Roger and I. Uh, and and the two before us, um, Chris um, uh, Chris Brown and Ray Andrews, both of whom I think since deceased. When we was when we went out to Borneo, we had to we in theory had to go without our New Zealand insignia and so on because the New Zealand government was sensitive at that stage to upsetting the Indonesians. Um, um, uh, but but Roger and I thought, well, no, we we are, we were very proud of our New Zealand shoulder flashes. 
and we put those up quite promptly, and nobody seemed to mind in the end. <laughs> um, so, 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 so everybody knew that we were from New Zealand when we were out there. Um, although politically, it was a bit, it was rather sensitive. Um, the sorry, you know, take me back to your question again. I'm, I'm uh, rambling so, a bit. No, no, that's that's right. Uh, it's just um, the question was about the idealism of uh, of the Indonesians and. Ah well, the, the Indonesia had Indonesia had lots of internal uh, problems at that stage, or growing problems. And I, th we, we, I, it was thought that the, uh, was partly a diversion tactic uh, by by saying that um, that the uh, he he was objecting fundamentally to the formation of Malaysia, yeah. which was um, a uh, um, uh, which united uh, Malaya, originally Singapore, Sarawak. Uh, and Sabah, and I, and to an extent, and I can't be quite certain. I can't remember now Brunei's relationship to that. So, and his, I think he part of his objection was this: the the formation of this this new uh, uh, new country, as it were, called Malaysia, um, on his north on the northern borders of the island of Borneo. Um, and partly a diversion tactic to take people's minds off. You know, it's quite a good idea if you have problems at home, you can and you can uh, stir up. You can suggest that there's there's a threat to the country. Then people uh, might might uh, forget what's going on at home and and unite against this this external threat. Right. Um, he he was uh, he he was not a, he was. Uh, um, I think he is seen as a troublemaker um, historically. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well that makes sense. <clears throat> um, tell me about the jungle. Were you worried about flying over the jungle? Was it? Um, Quite a hazardous. Um, I mean, I, I could just imagine coming down in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. You're going to be pretty stuffed, aren't you? And to be in deep, in deep, in deep trouble. I mean, we 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 all attended jungle survival courses before before we were before we were declared operational. Um, and um, there were sort of theories going around about well, if if you had an engine failure, then you look for a, a, a if there was no obvious. Uh, place to, to get down onto, um, and 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 in most cases there was nothing to land on. Um, you would um, try and wrap yourself around a big tree uh, and slowly sort of spiral down to the ground and get out of the wreck at the bottom. Well, I don't. I, um, one aircraft before I arrived, an Oster was shot down um, on the Indonesian border. I think it was in late '63. Uh, with a pilot and a padre, and I think they, well, the pilot was wounded, but and I, I think they both survived, but I can't remember now. It's a long time ago, um, and but he obviously landed, um, uh, uh, did had lost control of the aircraft, having having been uh, wounded in the arm. But uh, but um, yes, so I mean, for night flying, we carried flares under the aircraft, um, a parachute flare. And the theory was that you would pop that off and uh, find somewhere to land. Well, of course, there was nowhere to land. Um, we didn't have any, 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 obviously, any flotation kit on the aircraft. So when we went out to the to the minesweepers or on the on the sea patrol out of the of Tanjung Datu, then we we wore uh, a life jacket um, and we always carried a sabi, um, a search and rescue beacon equipment, um, uh, which uh, to mark our locations. But um, if yes, I think the answer was well. Fortunately, I don't think anybody ever suffered an engine failure. Uh, it was the end. The it was not 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 a fantastic engine in the Oster, a great big cast iron monster, but with it with a cartridge starter. Um, but um, 
I don't think that was ever tested, although it's probably something we got on with. Uh, we, we just got on, did the job, didn't worry too much about it. There was no point keeping an eye open for a field to land in because there weren't any fields. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, tell me about the Oster itself that you were flying there, um, its characteristics and what sort of range and duration and all that it had. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that the details will, will be a bit sketchy at the moment, but it had been developed, there was a series of Austers starting off, I think, I mean, the origin, the genesis was from the Taylor craft and American aircraft early on. Um, anyway, the AOP Mark IX had um, had a, an engine which was made by people called Blackburn, the Blackburn Bombardier engine, which was also used in the Skeeter helicopter for the British Army. Oh, yeah. it, it had um, it had a cartridge start. I can't remember that the horse, 180 horsepower, I think, nominally. Okay. Uh, but we were desperately short of power and in, in the tropics with it. Um, there had been a fatal crash in Hong Kong, I think, in 62 or 63, uh, with the aircraft carrying three people. So they re by the time I arrived, they had reduced the all up, the max all-up weight by about 100 pounds. But to give you an idea of the aircraft, uh, I mean, it, had, it was, it was, it had an, I can't remember range and endurance. That's embarrassing, isn't it? But um, I mean, I could, a, a, a couple of hours and a couple of hundred miles, that sort of thing, which, which was quite suitable for, for the, for the, for the role for which the aircraft was designed. Yeah. Um, we, I can remember, um, oh, gosh, I'm wandering here a little bit. Um, Oh, yes, yes, to give you an idea of, of the power problem, and you have to be quite careful if you got down into a valley. Kuching Airport had a runway a bit over 6,000 feet long from which a Comet airliner could operate and also um, and, and, uh, Royal Air Force Javelin and, and uh, Hunter jets could operate from. Well, I can remember on a hot afternoon there, for example, starting off at the threshold at one end. Um, window, all everything done. You close the windows, put the car there into ram out of filter and everything. Everything you could do to get maximum performance down the runway, and past the far end of the runway at about two hundred feet. Um, so you wow. could barely climb back up. You could barely climb up a sort of three degree glide path. So um, quite tricky. Yeah. Wow. Um, uh, it, it, had, it had not been designed for for tropical use. Um, and and was and was under, was definitely underpowered in that part of the world. So if you were if you were in a, you, you 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 were very careful not to find yourself pointing up up a valley, rising closing in on you and rising underneath you because um, uh, you you would you, you would never, may not climb out of the top of it. Right. So you just you always had to allow for you know in in the cruise fine eighty odd knots, but not um, but um, it, it was no aerobatic aircraft. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to say. It had three seats, um, obviously two in the front and side by side, and a single seat, rear-facing seat at the back. But that was not used um, later, uh, when they'd reduced the all-up weight. Um, it had, um, I, the airstrip, Samangang airstrip, was a couple of thousand feet or so long. And I used to, I'm, I'm just thinking now of comparing that with the Kuching runway, because I used to operate successfully out of um, out of uh, a couple of thousand feet of strip at Samangang, but I probably kept the all up weight down, and I could, I knew very well that when I had flares on board, which they might have been put on in the day for a, a potential uh, night mission, then I used to take off with, with obviously full throttle and so on, but with my finger on the jettison button for the flares. If I didn't make it over the trees at the far end, I'd pop the flares off to get rid of a bit of weight and drag. Right. So that was that, that that was the that was the the the, the theory. So it shows it was all a little marginal. Yeah. 
Um, but but still a very effective uh, observation platform, which was which was its primary job. So those flares that you mentioned, they they would have been for marking targets. Um... No, these these were strictly illumination. Um, oh. A parachute flare, yeah, a parachute illumination flare um, for in case of a, you know of a, of a forced landing at night. Right. Right. Gotcha. Um, I guess another thing being jungle, mountains and all that, you'd have to be very wary of the weather changing quickly, would you, being the tropics? Yes. Um, there was a, yes, and uh, there was, indeed, there was, but there was a fairly well-established routine. I mean, you would often have um, um, a misty, foggy morning, which would then clear, um, and day temperatures going up into the 30s each day. And um, and then thunderstorms would would develop in the afternoons and evenings. So uh, I think weather was not often a factor for me for for the for the jobs I was doing with the aircraft. But but there were you know very severe thunderstorms around a lot of evenings yeah. and nights. Okay, okay. Because you get you get you know the, the if you're in the tropics with the um uh the the cumulonimbus uh thunderstorm clouds would go up to 50 odd thousand feet and um so uh and underneath those it was put some, some you know some fairly severe weather right okay uh so roger was there with you were you um doing one day on one day off sort of thing or or were you flying no no, no no we were in two separate locations um oh, right. I was in the uh, Kuching, the the capital Sarawak was is in the first well, first administrative division, the first division, the second division, Samangang, which is where I was, and Roger was in the third division of Sarawak um, at its sort of divisional capital of Cebu, uh, yes. where there was an airfield and, and a navy squadron, a helicopter squadron ashore, um, and, um, and the, I mean the the, air, the the airfields were used by by Borneo Airways with sing with um, uh, twin Pioneer aircraft, oh, yeah. um, um, as well for for civilian flying. So no, we were on separate detachments and very much on a solo aircraft detachment. So you, we we were uh, self tasking, self authorizing, and and um, and did whatever we felt was uh, was safe to do uh, and of benefit to the people we were supporting. That sounds like a really um, interesting and quite good gig to get, really, isn't it? I mean, you're probably not in a region where you're going to get shelled on your base or anything like that, are you? So... No, no, there was no, there was no. Um, well, there, there were there were incursions, but none of them uh, ever threatened um, our, our airstrips or aircraft. Um, uh, but there, but if you give an example, the the Royal the Royal Art, British Army Royal Artillery had deployed an air defence regiment around the airfield at Kuching, yep. uh, with anti aircraft you know, radars and 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 uh, artillery. So to give you an idea that you know there was there was a perceived threat, but but that didn't eventuate. No, the answer was I mean for a, for a young for a, a, a young pilot to be off um, on on a solo detachment for for several months uh, was was a wonderful experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there any particular operations that you did that sort of stand out that we haven't talked about yet, or um, while you're in that area? No, the main, the main, the main, the, main, the most significant one from my point of view. One, and this is I'm dealing now just with the Oster phase, which was really 1964. Yeah. 
because if, when, when we move on a bit, when Roger and I went back to helicopters, there were, we did other things then. But but we um, no, the, the my main main uh, uh, involvement was that just that one day uh, Operation Blunt um, right. uh, attack onto the Indian onto the border. Um, but that, from my point of view, was a matter of standing off from the border and acting, helping with command and control over the radios and coordinating um, the the uh, missiles being fired by the Navy helicopters and and AOP shooting the the one hundred five millimeter gun, which had been towed along the road uh, and, and positioned. Um, but that was it. Um, so uh, no, other than that, it was it was very much a, a nicely varied, a nicely varied mixture. Uh, of tasks. Excellent. Um, was there ever any supply issues with getting parts for the aircraft or uh, fuel to the place or anything like that? Uh, no, I can't remember myself being AOG for any 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 significant period. Um, aircraft on the ground, sorry, AOG. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I refueled. There were no bases or anything forward on, on my airstrip. There were obviously bases at, at the, the Kuching main airfield. Yeah. But I refueled um, uh, from what were called flimsies, which were which were like uh, uh, tins. I can't remember what they held now. Probably a, a, a few gallons at a time. Yeah. I, and I I can't remember how those arrived on my airstrip. But <laughs> we always had a supply there. You 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 you. you um, Puncture the top, pull the pull the the seal out of the top, climb up on some steps, and and pour it in through a, a chamois filter to to remove any any water because obviously condensation is always a problem in the tropics in fuel. Um, so pour it in through a filter into the into the wing mounted tanks, um, and I had with I had a, a, a an army air corps technician forward with me um, in Samangang as did Roger and Cebu. And they they carried out the help with the refueling and carried out the daily maintenance. Okay. But you know, it, was, it was not an aircraft which which required a huge amount of of um, of ground support. Right, right, right. <clears throat> so you would have got to know the technician pretty well, being the only sort of other aviation guy in the in the unit, I guess. Yes, um, we sometimes had um, if if the RAF had a had a I mean later on the RAF had had a permanent permanent attachment in Samangang and it would have been the same with the Navy in um, in in Cebu. Yeah. Uh, they lived in the mess. We they were, they, we obviously had an officers' mess for the for the Gurkha Battalion, um, and we lived in that. And we I just remember as well as it I I had a. Um, um, uh, a, a driver signaler as well. So I had someone. I had a Land Rover, my Oster, a Land Rover driver, and and someone to keep an eye on the aircraft. But any any significant work on the aircraft, I flew it back to Kuching, yep. uh, where 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 it was pounced on by by the uh, by the flight's main technical base. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. <clears throat> so how long were you um, in in uh, the whole Borneo region? How long was this uh, tour for? Well, it was we we were sent from New Zealand on a two-year secondment, okay, uh, and spent that spent the first year um, either in Malaya or with, with I, I I had one break back in on back in on the squadron base in Kluang in Malaya. Yeah. Um, otherwise, we were as I say when I was a bachelor, so I didn't mind spending all, all my time in Borneo. Like the um, married married uh, pilots and ground crew and so on uh, were probably rotated more more frequently. Right. Um, uh, so 
that and that was 1964 in the round and then 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 also through into early 65 on um on on Austers and then the um the Sioux helicopters started arriving okay. and uh, in, in uh, early 65 um there was also an, uh, at um there was I just remember there was also an army air corps flight um uh, of scout helicopters at um at Kuching uh, and and they and and another an, another flight in um, further up into into the depths of Sarawak further further to the east northeast. Okay. Uh, but um, so so we both then uh, together with what the the um, the the British Army decided to have a series rather than having centralised flights they had decided to disperse their aircraft to various battalions and, and regiments. Um, and they formed a series of in the artillery case. There were Aero P troops of, of three aircraft and three pilots. Um, in, in the infantry, but in, in the infantry case, they had an air platoon. Uh, in the in the armored corps case, they had uh, an air squadron, for, uh, as an example. Um, and uh, so they started training and sending out uh, Sioux pilots um, to fly with their own battalions and 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 so on. Uh, and they obviously came out out to Malaya, did did a theater a theater conversion, uh, did their jungle survival training and so on, and then went and joined their 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 respective uh, uh, units yeah. to be to be live with them and and tasked out of the battalion operations room, okay. uh, very much very much a, very much a part of 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 the of the army unit, ground unit. Right, right, right. So Roger and I went in. So in the sixty five, I. I I can't remember the, the the exact date now, but we we joined we we joined um, this growing <clears throat> band of uh, Sioux and Sioux pilots. Um, uh, did so we we went so that we we had remember we had done our sixty odd basic helicopter hours with John Reed and Nelson in, in December sixty three, yeah. and so about eighteen months later we went back to helicopters again. Um, but we both found uh, you know, we cope with that quite well. And um, and then then we were sent out to um, we we joined um, an artillery aero P troop, uh, and then and found ourselves back in in Sarawak, uh, and uh, detached to a little detached base outside Kuching, uh, where, where we were uh, an, a unit of three um, three Sioux helicopters supporting uh, an artillery regiment which had been sent out um, on a year's deployment from the UK. Okay. Um, and, and so we we lived in tents and had an atap, which is like a big jungle, a big type of jungle palm um, leaf, and the, all the the, um, the 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 local the the Iban and Dayak lived in long houses with which which were timber framed and covered with leaves in a very effective uh, weatherproof traditional weatherproof way, and so we we built some some. Um, Shelter for the aircraft like that, and lived in tents, and and flew from there on a variety of missions, which mainly uh, administrative, because we we weren't actually at that stage firing and, uh, and you know engaging um, um, in, in Indonesians. We we weren't there. We we were never attacking across the border. You have to remember that we were always defending up to the border. Right, right, um, and and um, there were very few uh, successful incursions requiring artillery support, but the guns were there, uh, with with uh, with um, uh, targets uh, registered and so on in case there was a need. Okay, 
Um, you mentioned that you were living in tents. Had you been living in tents before too, when you were with the Osters? No, we, we no, we lived in in. Uh, I can't. I don't know. I don't know what sort of accommodation Roger had on on the airfield in Seabury, but we we lived in a um, very much that a, a timber framed and le- atap leaf cover roofed um, buildings, both for sleeping and and as and, and as a mess in in um, in in uh, Samangang. Okay. Yep. Um, and whereas later on, and I'll get around to that later, but later on when I was uh, back in Borneo again in, in late 65, uh, we lived in, in Timber Company um, um, accommodation, but I, we, we can get along to that later. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, right, so you've got uh, three Sues in this unit. Is that right? Three, you said yes. Yep, yep. Uh, so, and so Roger's with you now, is that right? Yes, he, Roger was the uh, was the Aperture commander, yep. and I was one of his pilots. Okay, and uh, so you're spotting for the artillery. Yes, a variety of, of things. When we the 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 at that stage, the uh, the uh, British Army had in Borneo the the one hundred five millimeter pack howitzer, and I remember correctly, New Zealand had bought some of those as well, uh, and deployed to Vietnam with them initially. Um, uh so i remember one one day we we did a this this house obviously as a pack heart it could be broken down into mule loads um and moved and um so and one day we, we did a trial we broke the gun down into various pieces and put them in a in an underslung load net and i was actually able to, to move a gun with um move a gun in pieces and then it was reassembled again with this with the with the unit sioux helicopter um this was very much uh, just a, uh, a little trial, and word got back to headquarters. Oh, you've 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 deployed a gun with the helicopter, and we said, "Oh no, hang on, wait a minute." Uh, we 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 just hovered we 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 hovered it for a hundred yards in a net across um across across the a clearing uh, and put it down again just to demonstrate that we could do it. Yeah. Um, but the capability had, would have been there, but of course with the with the availability of um, of Royal Air Force and Royal Navy helicopters could lift the whole gun easily had there been a requirement. Uh, and you'd need to also lift the people who can put it back together, I guess, too. So. Yeah, exactly, and 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 the detachment uh, on the gun, which would have been sort of four or five or six uh, gunners. Yeah. Um, uh, and then you've got to get the shelves to them. <laughs> yeah, and then and then as you said, then the ammunition and so on. So and then then. But of course, uh, you know, guns are normally used in 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 quite significant groups for for a, a better effect at the target end. And but these were all single gun locations because it was felt it was better to have um, a gun every so many miles, um, hopefully with interlocking arcs of fire, rather than um, not having anything not having anything at all. Right. Um, so uh, I can't. Remember, I don't know how they did that. Guns that not normally surveyed in very very carefully, so that so you know exactly where you are, and you know exactly which direction you're pointing in, yeah. and then hopefully you know exactly where the target is, and you can join the two with the calculation, and hopefully land land your first round pretty close to the target. Right. If you don't know where you are, and you don't know where you're pointing, and you don't know quite where the target is, then it's a much more hit and miss exercise. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so I've talked with uh, artillery guys. Um, uh, Royal New Zealand artillery gunners uh, from World War Two, and they would have uh, f- um, what do they call them? Forward observation posts, I think, yes. where where there'd be guys right up the front 
well ahead, just actually looking at the target and radioing back. Um, yes. Yes. That, could that can that possibly be done in the jungle, or uh, or was that yes, it was. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if we jump right ahead, I spent a year doing that in South Vietnam in 1968. Oh. So, that, so that's another story. All oh, right. But the answer was <laughs> the answer was yes. Um, the artillery units had their own um, their own uh, um, um, F forward observation officers was the as the form as the formal British term. Yeah. And later on, we adopted the the, the American abbreviation of FO for just forward observer. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're quite correct. I mean, it goes back to the days when the artillery troop commander commanded his guns from a, from an observation position, you know, on a ridge somewhere, yeah. um, with the guns behind him. Um, and he wasn't with his guns, but he commanded them over the radio from from his observation point. Right. Um, and so the. Um, I mean, a, a celebrated example is the late um, um, John Masters Military Cross, uh, and he 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 uh, won his military cross um, on, a, on a on a on a splendid uh, effort on a when he was on a, a cross border patrol, which 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 the British Army was allowed to do later on um, uh, with an, with a Gurkha company, but that's all been well written up. Dear old John died within the last few years. Okay. Um, but um, but he uh, it's pouring it's pouring here at the moment as matter of interest. We're very much into autumn uh, with lovely colours on the trees and things. Um, so so yes yeah, so I mean we we acted as eyes as the as the observation post in the air uh, when we were airborne. But the, but there were when required um, artillery um, uh, um, observers uh, forward with the with the infantry. Okay. okay. Uh, I was going to ask about the, the uh, you've mentioned about how the Oster wasn't suited to the tropical conditions. What was the uh, Sioux like in tropical conditions? Did it fly okay? Uh, yes, although it's interesting. The the theory, the, when we first heard we were getting these aircraft with turbochargers and so on, and in, in theory this kept kept full power up to several thousand feet on the engine, but, but of course rotor performance fell off. Uh, the rotor is also working in 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 thinner air, and um, so the the aircraft didn't have the performance in Borneo that they would have had back in the UK or in New Zealand. But it still it still had very good performance, um, okay. uh, and uh, power was never really never really an issue. We could fly uh, you know three passengers up um, in the Sioux uh, uh, routinely. Even you might not be able to hover, but you, um, you know, out of ground effect. But you could certainly, you could certainly fly safely and effectively with with a good load on board in the tropics with it. Right, right. Did you ever get a winter in Borneo? Was there? No, it's, it's effectively it's, it's effectively permanent summer. The 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 weather the the weather cycles are, are based on the monsoons. Yes. Um, with 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 winds coming in from different directions at different times of the year and bringing in more or less rain, um, temperatures typically in up into the low to mid thirties every day. Um, um, you know, a, a hot, sweaty, a very high humidity, so a hot, sweaty existence, which you just which you live with. But it's but there there is no winter. Okay, so what happens when the monsoon came with the rain? Uh, was there no flying, or did you have to still fly with a bit of rain? No, so sometimes I mean the rain would be so uh, it, you couldn't see where you were, where you were going. Um, 
uh, uh, very well at all. Um, so if clearly you didn't take off and fly under a massive thunderstorm, you would, it would be asking for trouble um, from, from I think, rain and low visibility as much as from lightning. Right, <clears throat> right. What about um, living in the jungle strips and that, was there any sort of animal activity, snakes, um, scorpions, anything like that that you had to watch out for? Uh, no, scorpions were interesting. We would often find large black scorpions um, on the strip in Samangang. Okay. Um, but of course, I was not—I was not on the ground in um, in in Borneo, and I, um, and so I didn't come across snakes or other animals. Right. Um, in the earlier days, in the early sixties, there had been—I think there might have been either an injury or a fatality with um, with British Army SAS patrol and elephants. Um, but um, but I've not heard of any of any problems uh, with, with any interaction between wildlife and and and, uh, and and the troops in Borneo. Okay, yep, yep. You didn't see anything around like um, orangutans or anything like that. No, no, sadly not. Uh, a a very much a threatened species because since we've since. Since the campaign that we're talking about now, which was called, called con confrontation, uh, confrontasi in, 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 for the Indonesian confrontation yeah. for the British, um, since then, of course, there's been massive deforestation um, in Borneo and uh, to grow um, to grow uh, palm oil and so on, and so um, which has threatened the habitats. I guess the lifestyles of the of the Ibans and Dayaks. And also a dramatic reduction in habitat for for in particular the most celebrated one, as you just mentioned, the orangutan. Yeah. Uh, but um, so there's been a lot of change since we were there. Yeah, what a shame. Um, yeah. So what uh, what are your memories of the Sioux flight? Uh, any any particular interesting missions or? Trips? Yes, absolutely. I um I I did. Roger and I were together at, at this uh, just outside Kuching in '65, probably mid '65, yeah. with on, with the artillery area P troop. And then later on in the year, I was um, sent to out to Sabah, which was North Borneo, in the northeast corner of of, of the country, um, and um, to take over command of the air platoon of First Battalion, the Scots Guards, okay. um, and where we, where we had two Sioux. And lived and and a, and a dirt airstrip and lived in in a in a the Bombay Burma Timber Company um, a base camp um, and there'd been a there'd been a, 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 a timber company in there for you know for decades and so we lived in some of their buildings some of their houses yeah and uh, and flew in support of of the our first time Scots Guards uh, who had once again a variety a, a number of forward jungle bases from which they patrolled. To deter uh, Indonesian uh, uh, incursions, right? And I did have I did have one um, hairy moment there. Uh, we had a, a radio rebroadcast site. I mean, obviously, uh, a radio radio communication was vital. The the range of radios we had then were, were, were really quite crude compared with modern communications. Uh, with they were heavy and uh, quite limited range and so on, on there was a peak uh, probably about three thousand feet high where they'd set up a radio rebroadcast site you could link two radios back to back and the, the communication would come into one of them be set be connected electrically to the other one and sent out on a different frequency so you would extend the range of communications and we had a small and two or three chaps up there 
obviously running that, and they had to have they had to have fuel for their generator to keep the radio batteries for the radio charge and so on. And um, I was tasked to take up some um, some fuel for the generators and then evacuate one of the soldiers who uh, was unwell. And so I came into a into a careful hover alongside um, uh, um, the, the, up uh, on this peak, and um, the idea was to uh, for them to offload the the, the jerry cans of, of, of fuel, and then for this chap to climb on board carefully and strap himself in, and away we would go. Yep. Well, I came into my hover and moved sideways along, up, up to the up to the slope, and he. And this chap leapt onto my, onto the 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 load platform called the Stokes letter on the outside of the helicopter. Well, um, that's that put my aircraft over max all that weight, over a weight at which I could hover at that altitude and outside natural uh, control limits. So I uh, I guess best to describe it as tumbled off off the side of the hill, um, down below tree level, managed to scoop the aircraft up cyclic climate back up above the trees again and, and escape the situation without um, without hitting anything which was uh, 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 which I was extremely lucky yeah I then I then he was still clinging on the outside of the aircraft at this stage. <laughs> oh, no. so I signaled I signaled to him to lift his um uh, to, to, <laughs> as we approached one of the forward bases I told him I was coming in with somebody on the outside and I managed to get him to lift to lift his legs my worry was as we approached the hover at the space he might decided to drop off yeah which would give me a massive change in lateral center of gravity and might give me some more control problems anyway we landed safely and um and he uh, he was eventually evacuated back to the battalion headquarters and and uh, uh, and um uh, and the aircraft wasn't damaged uh, so that that was a, a a very a very exciting moment i could imagine um, holy moly yeah <laughs> on other occasions another interesting example of what we did there the there were different rules we could we could as we were self-tasking within the battalion we could make up our minds and do something sensible that met the operational requirements so whereas the royal air force were often constrained by uh, regulations uh, drawn up back in the uk uh, by people who were uh, arguably uh, not fully in touch with with, with, the, with the operational needs so the royal air for example royal air force couldn't land anywhere in the forward areas uh, unless they were secure so it means you had to get troops on the ground, secure a landing, a landing uh, site or zone, and then they could fly in. So we had a we had a requirement one day to, to for some troops to be inserted. So with the two air platoon Sioux um, and um, and the battalion second in command and another officer with their with their Sterling submachine guns, we flew off and uh, sh and um, flew shot up all the edges of the of the. Um, of this, the clearing we wanted to use for the Royal Air Force helicopters, brass them up with uh, with with a few magazines of, of nine millimeter ammunition, and then uh, having convinced ourselves that we weren't being shot back at, landed and declared the landing site secure. Yeah. So there, there we were, two two Sioux on the ground, and then then the Royal Air Force could fly in. <laughs> um, so that, that that was another little interesting uh, deviation. Otherwise, we did like jobs like flying. Uh, the, the flying barbed wire out to the company locations, flying commanders in and out. Um, the, I had one other incident out there. Actually, it's interesting how my a nice quiet time on on my on my Oster, and then things started happening on the Sioux. 
I was flying along one day with a, with a, an Iban tracker um, um, on the aircraft, and um, there was a bang. I looked around, nothing, couldn't see. I thought I'd had a bird strike. I carried on, then I began to smell very hot, hot burning smell. So I put out a, a pan call and landed at a nearby company base uh, to find uh, the um, smoke pouring out of the engine. And what had happened was my engine it had it was a fan cooled engine and the fan bolts had broken all right and and there i was with a with a with a a, a, a destroyed engine so made it safely onto the ground uh, the navy came in with a helicopter and, and and carried it back out to base as an underslung load and when they dropped the oil filters they were full of full of bearing metal so i was very lucky i didn't have anywhere to land so it was a matter of get, getting a, getting to the company base or crashing in the jungle uh, and fortunately, um, the engine lasted long enough for me to do that. Wow, lucky! Um, so those those I think were my interesting uh, interesting times on, on the Sioux in Borneo. Did, did you enjoy flying the Sioux? Was it a, a good aircraft? Yeah, oh, y yes, because I think I liked being back. On, the Oster was a lovely old airplane to fly, but I did like being back on helicopters again. Right. Um, and then my life um, later on became very much centered on helicopters because uh, because I because I followed my. Um, Follow my New Zealand Army uh, flying with twenty years in the British Army. Oh, right. um, obviously, obviously based on helicopters again. Right, right, right. Um, so that that takes me up now to the end of '65, and then I was um, uh, uh, posted from from um, from Calabacan was the name of that jungle base where where we were living with First Battalion Scots Guards. And um, I have to say that they were absolutely wonderful. You, it sounds rather daunting, daunting to go and join a, a guards regiment uh, with their reputation, with you know, with with a re reputation for formality and so on. I couldn't have asked for a friendlier, more relaxed bunch. Um, and they, they 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 took me on board as one of their own, and I had a really lovely three months with them oh, uh, before finally handing over then to another to another to another guards officer who had been trained as a pilot. And then Roger and I had um, had uh, Roger at that stage had been posted into South Vietnam. He went up there in late '65, yeah. and after a, uh, some leave in the UK, I joined him at Benoit in South Vietnam in uh, January 1966. And, th and there begins another story. Okay, all right. Oh yes, that was that was a huge change. Um, and I mean, Roger had Roger been there a month or two before I had, and was well, you know, was well and truly part of the system. But I arrived um, at in, in Benoit, um, and um, put straight on to uh, conversion onto the onto the Huey uh, helicopter, the UH one uh, D. Um, with um, A Company, the 82nd Aviation Battalion, which had been detached from the 82nd Airborne Division to fly in support of the 100, U.S. 173rd um, Airborne Brigade, which was an independent brigade which had formed in the Pacific um, some years earlier and was then uh, sent into into South Vietnam as part of the build-up of American forces. So there were two Kiwis in in this um, aviation company, and. Um, so after um, a few, two or three weeks of, of conversion to the Huey, they, we, the aircraft flew there always with, with a two-pilot crew and, and, and a door gunner and, and uh, an aircraft mechanic. So it was a four-man crew yeah. with, the, with, the, with the, the gunner and, 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 the, and the mechanic, each manning a door, a door machine gun um, and the pilots up front. And um, so and then we've, we there were there were occasional single aircraft missions but most the most of the work there was involved in lifting troops 
right. uh, on on air mobile operations. You know, moving um, eighty to a hundred helicopters airborne all at once, um, and not not in one large formation, but in but in you know in groups in, in groups of, of a dozen or so aircraft, both troop carrying helicopters and helicopter gunships. And off we would go, and for example, you know, move a battalion, lift, pick a battalion up, take it, and do a do an insertion into an operational area, either either um, uh, in into a, an opposed insertion or one not opposed. And um, so we so we spent a few months um, doing that, and moved on from um, moved on from troop carrying to to the gunships. Okay. And I I became an aircraft commander on both the on both the Iroquois. Uh, demodeled the troop carrier and on the UH-1B gunship, which was um, a very, very exciting time. So something quite different. Lots and lots of ground fire, um, uh, getting shot up occasionally, uh, hearing uh, hearing rounds going past the aircraft. From my logbook, I can see that something like 12 or 15 times I, I came under fire, with the rounds close enough to hear them cracking past the aircraft. So, And that was not untypical of life uh, in an aviation unit in South Vietnam at that time. Wow, that's amazing. Did you find the transition onto the Iroquois easy after the Sioux? Was it just a natural natural step? Well, it was a, the, the big change was going from a piston engine uh, with a manual throttle uh, to a turbine, to a, to a turbine engine, yeah. uh, you know, with, with, with governors, uh, you know, with, with, with a rotor and engine governing. So, no, it was it was a much more um, sophisticated aircraft than the Sioux, uh, but a very, a very easy one to fly. Um, you know, it was this, I, I think I always think of this as the decoder of the helicopter world. I mean, there are still there are still Iroquois versions flying around the world now, which is extraordinary yeah. when you think the aircraft was developed in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, exactly. So, um, what was it? What was it like the very first time that you flew? With one of those big formations into the battlefield, was that quite something, quite daunting? It it, it was. I mean, I started off flying in as co-pilot, you know, in the left-hand seat, obviously, and then was given more and more a chance to fly the aircraft. And then, then once I became an aircraft commander myself, I moved to the right-hand seat and commanded the aircraft. Um, yes, we flew in various formations depending on the concept. Was <clears throat> with with air mobile operations was to land. An infantry unit um, in uh, in a formation from which, when it hit the ground, it could fight from. Um, so we were I, we we were either in in, uh, in two line what was called staggered trail two two lines of aircraft, ten or twelve, or with gunship support around the outside, or and sometimes in 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 sort of triangles of aircraft and echelons of aircraft. Sometimes in a long line, a single trail of aircraft, depending on what the landing. If we were landing on a road, then we would probably be in a long single trail. If we were landing in an open area, we'd be in a, a closer formation. And the idea was the troops hit the ground, got up, you to you you left, and there they were ready ready to fight to defend themselves or attack. Um, and you your your door gunners would would uh, would suppress any ground fire on their way in, and as would the helicopter gunships. And before you landed, there would have been a artillery, uh, preparation of bombardment of the area, and sometimes even uh, uh, United States Air Force close air support, bombing before you, before you landed. Yeah. So there was the challenge of, of uh, formation flying in, in, in quite often quite sort of lumpy, lumpy conditions with the tropical, tropical weather. Uh, and and um, 
uh, and of dealing with, um, with 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 the shooting going on. So it, but it, you know, it was, it was um, you, you all became very much involved in what in what was going on, and um, it was uh, you know a lot of adrenaline at times, but 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 a very a very very interesting experience. No doubt. I mean, the con- the, con- the contrast there was it came up a bit earlier. Whereas in Borneo, partly because the off on the landing sites were just were, were big enough for one helicopter only, yeah. uh, you, there was no question of landing formations of helicopters, even if even if the 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 air force could have mustered the number of aircraft. Yeah. So it was very much a single aircraft, sometimes on a racetrack sort of system um, in Borneo. Whereas in Vietnam, where there were where you had endless scope with uh, paddy fields and so on, rice fields. Big flat areas. You could you could you could land in, in formations of helicopters and put a blob of troops on the ground. You know, you could put a whole rifle company on the ground in one go, yeah. um, as opposed to as opposed to a section of six or eight men in one go. So so it was it was the the, the terrain allowed um, a different operational concept. How often would you have to go back and pick up those troops? Uh, you know, you see in the Vietnam movies they. It's always the helicopters that come and save the guys that are, um, you know, being all shot up. Is, is that is that really the case? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example of a sort of a, an operation where you might, so you would pick up an infantry battalion from its base, fly forward, um, insert that uh, into an operational area, and then the mass formations of the helicopters would withdraw. I mean, it was really a, an amazing operation. As well as, as well, you would obviously have a command and control helicopter commanding the whole uh, the whole battalion of helicopters which was operating on that day, yeah. including a Chinook for aircraft for downed aircraft recovery. Each aviation company of ten or twelve troop carrying helicopters with its with three to five gunships around it would also have its its maintenance um, helicopter with it with with quick change assemblies and other spare parts to try and get an aircraft back into the air again if it were darned. Yes. So sort of 60, 80, 100 helicopters, right? They would then go, they would, they would then disperse back to their various locations and you would have a battalion on the ground on operations. So you then transition to resupply. And uh, the Americans mostly operated on a daily resupply. So you had helicopters taking in uh, rations and ammunition. Um, and sometimes water, if uh, if they were in, a, in a, it was a dry season and they were in a dry area, yeah. you had um, command and control flights going in. Occasionally, you also had uh, casual evacuations. So we would we were frequently involved after that initial insertion on um, on casual evacuation. Um, if you remember, American casualties were extremely high, and I remember, I remember rough round figures of fifty thousand killed and half a million wounded during the right. Vietnam War. Quite shocking figures. Um, but, but you know, a quite high casualty rate. Um, so you would take back wounded back to a, a, a field hospital, or sadly, occasionally bodies back to to uh, Saigon uh, to be uh, sent back to the United States because the Americans took all their all their um, all their dead back to the, back to America. Right. Um, so, and then so then you come towards the end of the operation, which might last um, a few days. And then, we, then you would be sent in to extract the other uh, battalion. Uh, and so, once again, with the same thing in reverse, uh, a, mass, a large formation of helicopters, so 60, 80, or 100, uh, with those various capabilities, the, the troop carrying aircraft going in and picking up troops, taking them away with, with a shrinking ground perimeter, with the, with the troops responsible for their own ground defense uh, to start with. 
and then transitioning in, in the end to where helicopter gunships and things would take over, <clears throat> suppressing any any ground fire on the perimeter uh, while you were while you were extracting that battalion. And um, th those were the large troop, as well as putting in formation large formations of troops. We also occasionally inserted long range reconnaissance patrols, which was always done very sneakily, obviously because those chaps had to go in the jungle for days on their own. Uh, and um, and also the gunships often sometimes went off on their own, um, attacking some by day and by night, attacking um, uh, attacking targets, which might be um, uh, movement of um, sampans uh, on the rivers or, or or other things, or provides fire support to to um, to an outpost which was under attack and so on. Okay. So that that's a sort of a is a is a is a sort of a, a, little, a little an idea of, of the sort of things that went on right right now I, I the way i understand it unlike borneo where you operate in along a set border i think in vietnam wasn't this sort of thing going on all over the place with with uh there'll be an army group here looking after one patch and then there'll be another army group just over there doing the whole, all the same thing is that yes right? we had I mean, yes, you're dealing. If you go back to uh, 1954 to DNB and Fu, and then the then the, the division of the country uh, with a demilitarized zone between the north and the south, um, and so all when the north well, we, there were two aspects of this. There was the North Vietnamese Army invading the south, and the rise of obviously the Viet Cong guerrilla operations. So, yeah, the whole country was divided into operational areas. And, um, for example, the um, uh, later on, um, when Australia and New Zealand, uh, because when Roger and I were there yep. flying, um, it, apparently we didn't, there was no, uh, it was arranged between armies and, and didn't have political approval. So that led to some complications later on. But, la but later on, obviously, Australia and New Zealand made a formal commitment to the war in Vietnam right. as, uh, as part, of, part of a deal with the United States. And the Australian task force, for example, had an operational area. And other and other units had operational areas, and they were, as you say, there were there were there were the Americans had I, I mean the number of troops escapes me now, but but we're dealing with hundreds of thousands of I think of troops there in the end, yeah, you know a massive a massive uh, deployment. Um, so you uh, were now the one seventy third airborne of which we were part had had a, an area it was involved in the defence of the of the of the Banwar Air Base. But it also by by living on the side of it, but it also had um, it had a fairly roaming responsibility over over quite a big area. Um, so uh, so you, you're right. It, it was it was a more of a uh, it, it, a much larger area. I mean, it was a linear a linear war in 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 um, in, in, in Borneo in terms of defending a defined border. Um, whereas, I mean, obviously there were troops in the north, including a lot of uh, Vietnamese troops in the north, defending the, the, the demilitarized zone. But, but it was very much a, a, an area operation in Vietnam as opposed to a linear one. Right, right, right. And of course, in, um, in Borneo, you had a defined enemy too. Whereas in Vietnam, you've got the North Vietnamese Army, but you've also got the, um, the Viet Cong, who could have been anybody, sort of thing, wasn't it? Yes, yes, they were they were they were farmers by day and 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 a terror and Viet Cong at night. So yes, it was it was um it was a it was a much more difficult situation uh, for the Americans to deal with. Yeah. I mean, and it, people often try to make the comparison, but I don't think it's really fair to compare what the Americans faced and did 
and didn't do in Vietnam compared with the British success on the Malay Peninsula. Right. Um, you you had um, you things you you were able to you, the, the the Malay Peninsula was effectively could be effectively isolated um, and uh, and dealt with. Uh, whereas you whereas in 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 uh, in Vietnam you you had. Um, uh, in the end, quite massive uh, infiltration by North Vietnamese army units. And in my second tour in Vietnam, when I was with uh, the uh, as an FOO, uh, we were we were involved in uh, in very heavy fighting uh, on the battles of of, of um, Coral and Balmoral, which you probably heard about, yep. um, um, with uh, regular North Vietnamese army uh, uh, formations. So. Quite a change from from Borneo, as I say, with with uh, with small groups of uh, Indonesians coming across, um, to to um, to uh, guerrillas uh, guerrilla like warfare with the with the um, with the Viet Cong and Malaya, up to finally to to mass formations with artillery with heavy artillery support from the North Vietnamese Army. Yeah, absolutely. Um, tell me about the base that you were. On what I mean was that a huge place? Was it uh, you know well established? This was this was in in, in South Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, yes. The task the first Australian task force, which had a New Zealand um, rifle company and a uh, New Zealand artillery battery as part of it, uh, <clears throat> and some New Zealand SAS uh, 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 as well, was based at a place called Nui Dat. Um, in Phuc Thuy province, um, sort of southeast of Saigon, if I remember my geography correctly. Uh, it was in, uh, in rubber plantations. Um, it was just basically an area which which they were allocated, and where where they set up a base. So they created an airstrip. Uh, we had tented camps, uh, you know, sandbag tents in 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 camps. The the one six one battery position was uh, was on was on the perimeter, where they could where they could um, defend a section of the of the task force perimeter as well as fire their guns. Um, and we had an American um, uh, uh, heavy artillery um, battery, um, Husky Bravo, with us there. They, they were a mixed battery of um, a 155 self-propelled, M109 self-propelled guns and um, 175 millimeter, very long range uh, howitzers. Okay. And, and, they, and, they, and they, they, they provided heavier fire support to the base. Um, I went back a few years ago. My, my wife and I went to South went to South Vietnam on a on a tour of on a trip around Southeast Asia, yeah. and um, uh, we managed to get back to to Nui Dat. Uh, I got I couldn't quite find where my tent had been, but I think I got within a, within a hundred yards or so of it because oh, the, the rubber trees had been replanted in that time, um, and with the area which had been cleared for the for the for the for the I, I was an FOO with mainly with. Um, Three, three battalion Royal Australian Regiment, yes. and um, I found our lines there. And I was able to go. There was um, a, a, a significant battle with um, Captain Maurice Stanley, uh, Royal New Zealand Artillery, yep. who was decorated for his action in it. And um, uh, and there's a little war memorial um, there out in the out in the jungle now, um, where they had that very successful engagement. And I was able to go and lay some flowers on that memorial, provided. Flowers provided for me by rather rather sweetly by um, by our Vietnamese guide. So, wow. the interesting thing in you know in, in uh, since the war has been the most amazing transformation. Vietnam is now okay; it's a united country, but it's very much a market economy. 
Yeah. And um, and it's more much more interested in 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 looking after tourists than it is about about um, uh, uh, worrying about the what they call the American War. So it's quite it's an extraordinarily beautiful and lovely place to go and visit. Right. Quite a contrast to my time there in sixty six, sixty seven, and sixty eight. Yeah. Wow. So um, <clears throat> when I asked about the base, I was actually meaning with the helicopters earlier because you were talking about your. Oh, sorry. Yes. Sorry. Back to yeah, that, Oh, sorry. Right. We we were sorry. we were parked. We were. Yes. Right. So we um, the um, we were an aviation company of shall I say, about 20 helicopters, probably, a mixture of uh, probably about two-thirds uh, UH-1Ds and, and one-third UH-1Bs gunships. Yeah. So we were based um, in tents and in huts, which which they'd managed to gather up materials to build, <clears throat> on the edge of the of the airfield at Benoit, where, where we occupied you know, part of the, of the of the perimeter around it. Yeah. And, we, and we were part of a whole airborne brigade, so we, which had uh, obviously had infantry, uh, uh, aviation, uh, artillery, engineers, medical. I mean, where there was a field hospital there as part of it, and one six one battery uh, was blistered onto the side of that of that uh, that that location when it deployed. So there was uh, where our helicopters were were parked, not that far away. Um, you know, a short drive in the Land Rover were was an Australian battalion. Um, and, and with with some with I think they might have had a battery of guns. I can't remember now. They certainly had some Sioux helicopters there and some Cessna um, fixed wing aircraft there supporting them. Yeah. Plus one six one battery. Okay. Um, and so we, we and, and so we we're very much on the side of the Benoit airfield. Okay. Right. 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 So you were able to catch up with Kiwis fairly regularly during that tour. Absolutely. Um, uh, it was interesting. So. When you know when there was downtime in the aviation company, we, we could get on a get call up a Land Rover from from the one six one battery and go over and have a, have a meal with them or chat to chat to chat to them over there then, and which, which was very nice from our point of view. Uh, but operationally, we were very much um, uh, tre uh, treated as American pilots and um, and and uh, and and lived and flew uh, with the, with the American aviation company. Right, right. But what were the Americans like to work with, uh, having com like compared them having worked with uh, the British uh, system? Oh well, I mean they're they're quite different, but very professional and and very nice to be with. I mean we were in an airborne brigade, and you have to I think you have to accept that airborne troops go through a pretty tough selection process. Um. Uh, both physically and with a parachuting point of view, yeah. and um, so you know it was it was a it was a, a very professional brigade, uh, of which uh, the aviation company, which it was was an equally professional part. So, thing it, you know it, you got used to different different rations and different daily routines and and different names for things like uh, and but so but we adapted very quickly. And 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 I certainly I'm, I can't speak for Roger, but I'm but I'm sure he did as well. We you know we had a, we had a, a very nice, a very interesting operationally and and very nice time for domestically with, with them. Right, right. D did you get assigned your own personal uh, Iroquois, or did you um, did you just get whatever was on the line on the day? Well, no, very much the, the latter. Um, what what was on what was serviceable on the day? Uh, the the system they operated, they had a crew chief with each helicopter, yeah. 
And he lived with that helicopter and came to know it very, very well. And most of them took great pride in them, uh, in their aircraft. Uh, he was in, he was then assigned a door gunner who looked after the, the two um, uh, machine guns and the ammunition for them. And, um, uh, and so you, you were, uh, I mean, for a typical air mobile assault day, there'd be a, a, a pre-dawn, you get early warning the evening before, you'd know you were going to be uh, flying that next morning. There, you would go out, out to the aircraft at, uh, at, as they called it, O-Dark 30, yeah. um, get, get, get them pre-flighted, ready to go. And then on a series of radio commands, you would start and check in and so on. And then you would have your chalk numbers where you were going to be in the formation. And then you would you would crank up and uh, call it. You were ready to go, and then the uh, the company commander would 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 depart, and the aircraft would depart after him. Um, some interesting things: if the the Iroquois had two battery positions, and sometimes an aircraft wouldn't start due to a, a flat battery, so there'd be a, a frantic swapping of batteries um, on the line. An aircraft which was running would give up its battery. <laughs> All right. The crew chief would carry it over, connect it in, get yours started, then carry it back again. There were lots of little things like that that went wow. on. Um, and, um, and then off we would go. So, yeah, so very much a, um, a particular tail number of aircraft uh, on, on a particular day, but you were never, you were, unlike the, um, the, the very much the personal air platoon arrangement, you were very much, um, uh, it was very much a pool of helicopters and a pool of pilots. Right, right, right. So um, you you mentioned earlier the the crew you'd you'd have the the two guys in the back as well. Would, would you be a formed crew, like flying together all the time, or would would it be mixed up each each day? Different different people got to fly with. Well, the, the the crew chief and the door gunner would be would would, would um, have a particular tail number of aircraft, which was theirs. Ah, right. Uh, okay. and, and the pilots would just be assigned. Into that aircraft on that day. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. So, so you could yeah. you, you could actually literally in a month you could fly with every different uh, crew chief and yeah, exactly on the, on the squad. Exactly that. Okay. Exactly that. All right. And and they had no problem with uh, the Kiwi accents or anything like that. They they uh, no. Kind of... I, I I think we were we were accepted uh, just accepted as um, uh, together with the rest. I. I I was never aware of any of any of any division or any sort of sideways glances or remarks. No, I think we 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 seemed to fit in pretty well, and they and they were you know they were pretty nice chaps to get on with. And there were some you know some very experienced operational pilots among them. Later on, when they started when the Americans started expanding in Vietnam rapidly, obviously they was rather than sending out experienced people, they had to send out. Um, New, newly qualified pilots from from their base at Fort Rucker in, in Alabama, and um, so you you would find yourself as an aircraft commander, commander with a new pilot, and your part of your job was to carry on sort of schooling him in, into the demands of uh, operational flying in South Vietnam, which which were which were the aircraft were extremely heavy, yeah. uh, and conditions were hot and uh, you know uh, high density altitude, so aircraft performance was impaired. A bit like the Susan Borneo again, yeah. so you often had to, had to carry on training them uh, to to do you know, to develop a, a more delicate touch on the controls and things to get airborne. Um, so um, you know, so there was really there was there was full in, full integration. Okay, right. 
as I say, the, the Trooper Gang aircraft had a, had an M60, which was a 7.62 millimeter NATO caliber machine gun on each door, yeah. and, um, and a few boxes of ammunition. Now the gunships were interesting. There were various configurations, but but you could have a, a gunship, the basic one, which had um, uh, each side of the aircraft on hydraulically operated, electro-hydraulically uh, operated and aimed um, turrets. You had two M60 machine guns. And then the door gun, the 7 one would say you had six six machine guns on the aircraft. <clears throat> and you would carry up to 9,000 rounds of 7.62. Well, that's all pretty heavy. And um, and if when you were when you were making a, 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 a you know a firing pass at something and and all six all six guns flying the cockpit used to fill with hot brass uh flying everywhere um right, right. some down the back of your neck inside your, sometimes it down the back of your neck inside your flak jacket <laughs> other times all over the all over the, the control console between you so you would wind up sweeping all that off onto the floor <laughs> um quite um, quite quite um you know, things think I think things are much more organized since. I remember the Australians uh had reached a stage where they had uh, pouches to catch the empty brass, but in but in the early days, uh those refinements weren't there. So uh and 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 a gunship on a hot afternoon, fully loaded, you know, just refueled with a, with more ammunition and sometimes rockets on the outside as well, yeah. was sometimes quite difficult to get airborne. Um and you would you would um uh, start to start to uh, lift and in, lift into a low hover and start to 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 uh, transition forward, and you you would find the main rotor RPM uh, uh, bleeding off. So you so you have to um, brush the skids on the ground, lower the lever, pick up RPM again, get airborne again, and a series of sort of kissing ground kissing movements. Finally, get airborne. Right. Um, once you were airborne, you were dealing with a very heavy, rather sluggish aircraft, but. Uh, the, these were all interesting aspects of of of, of operating on, in those conditions with, with those airplanes. Right, right. So the main, the basic configuration was was the um, seven point six two machine guns. The next one up carried a rocket pod each side, as well as as well as some machine guns. There was one which had a, a forty millimeter short range cannon on the nose. It fired like forty millimeter grenades. For I, I'm going to take, take a guess now and say a kilometer or so in front of the aircraft, um, there were some which had had carried more rockets on the outside, and later on led to an organisation called the Aerial Rocket Artillery, where, where they specialised in that. Um, the, the 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 guns, the machine guns on the outside on the electro hydraulic mounts were quite interesting. They were they were flexibly mounted, so you had a a, a sight in the cockpit. With that, with a, a little joystick on it, and as you move the joystick, the guns move. So you, you could move the guns left and right and up and down, and so you you could um, shoot at the target, which was offline, off the center line of the aircraft, uh, or, or if you're making a diving attack, as you turned away, you could then keep the guns trained on the target as you broke away from the target. So, um, you know, some, some some interesting developments. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, did, did you um, have many aircraft sort of uh, as you're going into the uh, in those big formations into the battlefield uh, get shot down and and they'd have the guys had to be rescued or anything like that? Um, not in the not in the, curious enough not in the formations. Okay, but I was um, on a resupply of the, the there was a, a battalion of 
Airborne Infantry, which which was um, we wanted to sorry we wanted deployment from Benoit to up into War Zone D, which was a a, a long term um, sort of hot area in, in Vietnam, and, and and in part of that later on in in, in 67, 68 is where the where the ANZAC Task Force uh, fought the battles of Coral and Belmoral. Yeah. Uh, so we um, I was up flying on that particular day in a in a D model. Uh, on on resupply missions, taking in food and things. When when um, when, when I arrived, uh, not long after dawn, the one of the battalions had come under heavy heavy ground attack uh, from North Vietnamese, and so I was tasked. I was switched from going to take in in food to switching in. They had very cleverly prepared um, or preparing uh, underslung load underslung loads, but, you know, in nets of mixed natures of ammunition. So more grenades, more machine gun ammunition and so on. Yep. So my job was to carry this underslung load into this battalion position and deliver it. Well that was quite interesting because off I went off I went with my load underneath and um and, uh, uh, and not that uh, just a few kilometers away where this battle was raging. Um and there were um uh, fighter ground attack aircraft um United States Air Force dropping bombs on the on, on the perimeter of this battalion position artillery firing like mad and um so i established ground communications and asked the um and they said right the what we used to do they to mark where you were on the ground they would throw a colored smoke you would never say which color you were throwing until you until it was identified by the aircraft yeah. because if you because otherwise you would find the Viet Cong would would put up a colored smoke as well so right. yeah. uh, anyway i was i was given returning said right you know we pop smoke i said right you know, uh, contact red smoke or whatever it was and so in i went into the middle of this uh, firefight with my load of ammunition um well we started receiving as you uh, um, it, all i can say is withering ground fire uh the aircraft was hit repeatedly um and air bullets were cracking past the aircraft um a bit like on a fireworks night and um uh, one of my door gunners leaned out of the door and and called out, "I got one! I got one!" So he, he managed to shoot one or two one or two north of Vietnamese on his way. And but anyway, we arrived in the middle of this battle, and and uh, uh, the, 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 from the ground came the cry, "Drop it and get the hell out of here!" Which so uh, sure enough, I, I dropped off my load and um, and flew away. Uh, at that stage, screaming fuel from holes in my fuel tanks. Thing. So there's an example, and I made it back to the artillery base. And uh, where, where, where there were lots of holes in the aircraft, and um, uh, but what they managed to do, no, no, nothing vital had been hit except the fuel tanks, quite amazingly. And um, they, uh, the the our maintenance helicopter, we, we were uh, our call sign were the Cowboys, uh, the A Company, and uh, and uh, and our maintenance um, helicopter was known as Horse Thief. So uh, so the the so the so the maintenance officer flew in. And took some of the floor panels up out of the aircraft, cut holes into the nominally bulletproof uh, fuel tanks, which were empty at that stage. Plugged plugged the crossfeed, plugged the uh, the crossfeed um, tubes and things, and we put fuel back in and managed to get the aircraft back to base. So that that was my one experience of um, of of an aircraft being shot down uh, uh, nominally, <laughs> even though I managed to get it back onto the ground again. So these things did happen. Yeah. And there were we had standard operating procedures for downed aircraft. If an aircraft had been shot down on one of the bigger missions, then there was a there, there was a, a well-oiled system 
for recovering the crew and the aircraft. Yes, yeah, yeah, sounds like. <laughs> Excuse my coughing, but I think I've been talking for rather a long time. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if, if you want, we can finish this up and come back and, and do another session. Well, I think that that's probably got to the end of end of it now in terms in flying terms. As in my second tour in Vietnam was was on the ground, and, and that's that, that's not really what we're dealing with. Um, so that that I've, I'm trying to give you there a run through. I think my experiences of um of life as a new zealand army pilot very much so it's fantastic <laughs> really really interesting stuff and I, i'm very, <laughs> i'm very pleased to be able to uh sit down and record this thank you very much there we are so look i if we can sign off there then dave um sure. and I'd, be, I'd, be happy, I'd be happy to talk to you through 20 years of of army air corps including seven years as as a test pilot so oh wow that's yeah. that's another day well, thank and you very you... much. <laughs> that'd right. That would be great. Yeah, no, definitely we'll sign it off there and I'll come back to you at some stage and we'll get some more. Yeah, okay then. Give me <laughs> so um if you if I if um uh, as always yeah, there's, there's there's always um a footnote which which uh, I've done things to, to the best of my memory but we're going back uh to back to the 1960s which is a year or two ago. It is. <laughs> for, 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 for a chap who's now 82, and I've done my best to remember everything and, and represent things honestly and accurately. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you've done very well, so thanks a lot. Okay. Well, good luck, then, Dave. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. 